Doctors Eyes Only podcast community knows that life is multidimensional and creating wealth that matters goes beyond the balance sheet. Join us twice monthly to hear from inspiring physician guests and subject matter experts with unique insights for physicians in life, money, and business. Glean clear takeaways to improve your life and medical practice starting today and leave inspired to live your own wealth that matters. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Doctor's Eyes Only podcast. I am your host, Cameron Helmuth, and today I have a new co-host with me, uh, Brad Quick. Brad, say hello. Hello, everybody. So Brad is a uh, partner of mine here at Bestia Personal Wealth Advisors, and he has great industry experience. If you want to give me just a quick resume, Brad, how long were you in orthopedics? What's your connection? Sure, Cam. Happy to. I was a five-year person at J&J Orthopedics, which is Depew. That's actually where I met this guest who's going to join our podcast. And then 10 years with Zimmer, then Zimmer Biomet. And so that was my sorted past in the orthopedic industry. Most of that was in knee replacement, mm-hmm. a little bit in hips, a little bit in foot and ankle, but that's my tenure. And so that's kind of how I got to know a lot about this space. Nice. And we don't discriminate. We love all orthopods here. So this is us talking to all orthopods and our goal, we want to give you some education, some insight. We want actionable insights. We want you guys to feel like this is a good use of your time. You walk away with something hopefully you didn't know before and you can say, yep, that was a good use of my time. Here's something I should do. So without further ado, I will introduce briefly our guest, Teresa Ford. Teresa is an attorney in the Washington state area, works in multiple states across the country, has a pretty unique background in history and then connectivity to orthopedics. So why don't you just tell your own story because you know it best, Teresa. Thanks, Cam. Delighted to be here, you guys. I am a 30-year lawyer in November, so I'm an old lady. Mark that down. (laughs) I started as a medical malpractice defense litigator. So I was defending doctors and hospitals and eventually wound my way into medical devices. I was in-house counsel at Salter Medica, which owned, among other entities, Salter Orthopedics. And I spent several years there and realized that I was hooked and I wanted to stay in orthopedics and in devices. But I also wanted to go out on my own. I wanted to start my own firm. My husband tells me that I have oppositional disorder, oppositional defiance (laughs) disorder. So I was like, I need to have my own firm. I need to do my own thing. And what that ended up morphing into was kind of a dual existence. I do a lot of compliance work with medical device companies, but my real love, and so if you're a medical device executive listening to this, sorry, my real love is working with my orthopedic surgeons. I represent... Over 400, last count was 420-something orthopods around the country in all different specialty areas, foot and ankle, hips, knees, shoulders, trauma, you know, upper extremity, lower extremity, and really just kind of work with each one of them with their own individual experiences. Do they need to have employment agreements negotiated? Are they working with industry? That kind of stuff. I'm turning into everybody's den mother because I've been doing this so long, but I 100% love it. And I'm just tickled to be here on your podcast because I think it's an incredible resource for the doctors. They need it in this kind of crazy world we're in. And it's just a big deal for me to be here. So thanks very much, Cam. No, we appreciate it. And one last thing before we move on, you forgot to mention that you were a classically trained musician. 
<laughs> I am. I was. I am. I was a French horn player professionally for about 10 years, an orchestra musician, which means as a brass player, I can swear and I can drink. And I have continued those talents. I've continued honing those skills through the years. And that works really well in orthopedics, too. Absolutely. So I'm set. I'm set. Yeah. You're in the club. That's fantastic, Teresa. And I'm an amateur. I actually did play trumpet and I did a brief stint in French horn. So I don't think we're going to compare French horn skills anytime soon, it sounds like. (laughs) Hey, I don't know. I see a weekend outing with the horns. This could be good. That would be fantastic. (laughs) So one of the things you mentioned there is the need for orthopedic surgeons to have a lawyer. Why don't you maybe set the stage a little bit? What are some of those reasons why an orthopedic surgeon might want to engage a lawyer who specializes in kind of their space? Well, and you just said something really important, specializing in the space. You know, there are a ton of good lawyers out there and we all do different things. This is a real niche practice. It's very specific. And there are more of me. I'm not the only one and I'm probably not the best one, but it's very important for orthopedic surgeons, any doctor really, but we're focusing on orthopedics, to get legal guidance on top of all the other things that the surgeon is going to want to consider when either taking a job, joining a practice, working with industry. I won't say that people who hand out contracts, whether it's employers or it's Depew or it's Simmer Biomat, I'm not saying anybody's trying to dupe anybody, but it's the nature of contracts, right? One side wants what they want. Yeah, it's business. Exactly. And, you know, the business side of it can favor or at a minimum be extraordinarily fair to the surgeon, but you have to work at that. The biggest areas that concern me are intellectual property. And then the second big area that concerns me when it comes to employment agreements is control over your own practice. You don't want some administrator who, you know, wears a nice Armani suit to work every day to tell you what devices you can and cannot use. Hmm. That's not okay. And so you really have to be prospective about that kind of thing. And I think most surgeons, brilliant as they are, are not thinking about those issues when they're ready to ink a document. Right. Is it okay to pick up a lawyer maybe mid-career or is this something they needed to start right away? Brad, you know that's my sweet spot. That was a beautiful softball. I am now going to knock it out of the park. (laughs) You're welcome. No, Brad, no mid-career. No, sir. No, siree. That is one of the most frustrating things for me. I'll tell you, I sometimes lecture at CME meetings, at continuing med ed meetings. And I made the mistake of saying this. It wasn't a mistake to say it. It was the way I said it. So I'll just share it with your listeners. I told the audience I am much cheaper on the front end than the back end. Yeah. So like 100 doctors just completely lost it. But my point is this. It's really important to get that legal help early. It's important to, first of all, educate yourself as a doctor. You know, what are the things that my lawyer is looking at in the document? What are the things that my lawyer is concerned about that I didn't even think about? Or maybe I did think about it, but I didn't know how to fix it. And if you start doing that early on, you become, as a doctor, as a surgeon, you become really savvy. I have some guys and gals that have been with me for, gosh, 20 years now. And they know what to look for. Now, they still send me the agreement. They're like, eh, I just don't, I don't want to miss anything. Mm -hmm. But they know what to look for. And if you start doing that early when you're finishing your fellowship and looking for your first job, you're going to create good habits. And that is so important. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Isn't it a little 
taboo almost though. Like first off, you know, very few of us want to admit when we need help, let alone seek it. I mean, I do think that's part of the problem is I do think there are people who just relish in being able to DIY and very similar to the financial world, the legal world, tax world. Those are worlds you do not want to DIY. You can, you know, make a workhorse or a table from your garage, but maybe not your legal or financial foundation. Am I right? You are dead on. And I think some of it too, especially with the younger doctors, they are afraid or concerned about upsetting anybody. You know, they have this great offer from a fabulous, you know, from Johns Hopkins or from, you know, UCLA, and they're so excited. And they don't want to walk back in there with a red line document and say, well, my lawyer says I have to have this. Mm, Right. And I understand that. I understand that. But the flip side to not doing that is to sign a document that is not favorable to you, that takes away a lot of your control. And then you're stuck because when you go back five years later to renegotiate, they say, well, you accepted these terms five (laughs) years ago. What's changed? Right. Yeah. So you really want to not back yourself into a corner. And I will say this for the healthcare lawyers who are out there. It's really important that you work cooperatively with your clients. I never tell a client what to do. That's not my job unless it's around the holidays and I want a certain type of wine sent to my office. In that case, I tell them exactly what to do. I give them excellent guidance. But when it comes to take this job, don't take this job, work with Depew, don't work with Depew. That's not my job. But my job is to spin out. This is what the contract says. If you don't push back on this particular part of it, here's what you're stuck with. That's my Mm -hmm. job. And then the doctors make their decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. It's education, right? Yep. 100%. I was going to say, I remember that's the piece I remember working, sitting across the other side of the table, especially in my Depew days, there were some contracts with some lawyers on some salvage systems. And I will say, I appreciated having somebody on the other side of the table that kind of knows what's reasonable and kind of knows what to expect because they do have that experience there. So we didn't always love sitting across the table from an experienced (laughs) veteran, but we did appreciate that we were going to have a very reasonable contract when it was all said and done. Yeah. And the other part of that or a part of that is that we are so regulated in healthcare. There are so many compliance concerns. And the one thing you run into when a doc doesn't have a healthcare lawyer is that the lawyer will come in and say, well, my doctor needs $2,000 an hour. You know, we all need $2,000 an hour, but we're not going to get it. And doctors shouldn't be getting it. It's not compliant. And so you can be a great lawyer and you can fight, fight, fight for your client, but you also have to do it within the framework of what's legal. And healthcare is such a unique place. It's such a unique space. And it just stays that way. You know, my firm celebrates 20 years next year. And I got to tell you, it doesn't look anything the way it looked when I started, which is great for me because it's interesting and it's fun. But it's got to be a little scary if you're a doctor out there trying to figure out what you want to do. Yeah, that's a great point, Teresa. And one of the things that someone unfamiliar with the space wouldn't understand some of the deferred prosecution that happened during my tenure there and and obviously (laughs) yours, just understanding what some of those running rules are. And so, again, that's just a good starting point to come from. Yeah, I'm sure you still have PTSD, Brad. (laughs) A bit of that, sure. (laughs) My hat is off to you, sir. He's coming out of his shell finally. (laughs) I am. I am. The scars are healing. (laughs) Slowly but surely. Okay, so one of the values that you hit on is, I think, understanding the value, number one, of a surgeon's time, right? But also their ideas. And I think it's, 
typically much easier. You know, we also, we really harp on this, but that first contract, that is a foundation financially and legally to whatever the precedent you're going to accept in the future. So if you just jump into that first contract and rightfully so, I mean, it's 10X what your fellowship salary is. You understand that it's like more money than I've ever made in my whole life, not knowing you could be leaving millions on the table long-term just by taking that first contract offered. So when you think of like, okay, time value, I can figure out some of that, but how do you start to value or put a dollar attached to intellectual property or business ventures? Like, how do you approach that? That's the sticky wicket, right? That's where, and I don't mean to be crass, but there's a lot of money to be made. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of money to be lost, to your point, if you're signing the wrong document. Mm -hmm. You have to look at intellectual property and consulting in general, but you have to look at intellectual property with two things in mind. The first is, what does this agreement say I'm giving up? What am I assigning? What am I saying is yours? And the your is, are you an employer? Are you a device company? Are you my practice? I've seen a lot of agreements where the practice can come in and say, if you've got a great idea and, you know, United Orthopedic or Zimmer Biomed or whomever, small, big, they want to buy it. Well, you're going to share those spoils with us. Now, personally, I don't think that's fair. And I would certainly negotiate against that. But you need to understand what the agreement says in terms of what's in your head and what they own. Then the second thing is this really difficult piece of it, Cam, that you touched on. What's it worth? What's it worth? You know, if I jot down a new patellar femoral component on a cocktail napkin and I just know it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, what do I do with that? First of all, you do not lose the cocktail napkin. I've had that happen. So do not lose the cocktail napkin. Potentially good practice, put it in an actual engineering notebook. But then what do you do with that? You know, if you're working with a company, if you're working with Depew, if you're working with Smith & Nephew, do they own it? Do they own it because you were sitting in a bar with a friend and started talking about it and wrote it down? It depends. You know, if you don't have a contract that protects your interests, they might own it. Hmm. So- you know, first of all, who owns it? And then valuing it. Is it mine? And then what's it worth? And how do I find out what it's worth? And what do I want to do with it? So IP is so complicated. But the biggest thing to worry about is not giving it away. That's the first mm-hmm. touchdown. Yeah. Well, great job security for you, number one, right, Teresa? It's very complicated and it changes. But back to your point, specialization is key. Like in our world, you know, things change constantly in a physician's life and orthopedics in general. And if you're not working in an industry or with a professional that has their finger on that pulse, it's very easy to give a big upside or potentially put yourself at risk. So it's interesting, like, give me just a little, like, take me behind the curtain, like your method to the madness. If I'm coming up with that femoral piece you know, I can't just go and look at the last one that was just like it and give it the same multiple. And here's what I think it's worth. So I think one of the questions I get asked a lot is, is this even worth anything? Like, is this even a valid idea? And how do I get that validated? And what could it be worth? So like, I know people are asking that question. How would you approach that? Boy, that has like 72 different answers. I know it. Uh, All of which I will not go through on this podcast so everybody can breathe a (laughs) sigh of relief. (laughs) I think 
the first response to that is if you are currently working with industry, that's going to be your best conduit for getting some kind of an idea how creative you have just been. Now, just big red flags. I realize we're not visual, but if we were, I would be waving a big red flag. Don't just sit down and talk to somebody about it. Get a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, and right. that takes 15 minutes for any qualified lawyer, and there are tons of us out there, for any qualified healthcare lawyer to draft. Go ahead and spend that $100 because it could potentially save you millions. Mm-hmm. So get your concept protected. The other thing I would say is before figuring out what it's worth, Make sure, all kidding aside with that cocktail napkin, I mean, we've all seen that happen, but make sure you do have a signed, dated, you know, whether it's just a recitation of design concepts, whether it's a drawing, whatever it is, you know, if you've gone into your garage and you've made a sawbone, you know, whatever, protect it, protect it, be able to show that it's yours. And then, you know, again, if you're working with industry, I think that's where you start. You talk to the engineers, you talk to you know, the product development people don't talk to the salespeople because number one, they're going to tell you, oh my God, this is a $50 million idea. Will you just try my knee? And then we'll talk about it later. So don't talk to the salespeople. I mean, talk to the salespeople, but not about that. That's a good place to start. If you're not working with industry and this is where you are going to spend a little money, but it's worth it. Go to a patent lawyer who specializes in medical devices. I work with one of the best patent lawyers in the country. This guy's amazing. And he's in Toledo, Ohio. Explain that to me. I mean, I'm from wow. Ohio, so I know what Toledo looks like. Just <laughs> And shout out to Toledo. Love Toledo. But, you know, and this guy is great at looking at designs and concepts. He's been in devices for years. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at, A, knowing whether you've got something unique that should potentially be patent protected. But B, he's also really good at saying, you know, I can't protect this from a patent standpoint, but this is good. It's different than what's out there because it's painted purple or it's got this little notch here Mm -hmm. and you should pursue this. And then it becomes a question of finding the right people to talk to industry if you don't have Mm -hmm. those relationships. Got it. Right. There's many people who I talk to, and a lot of orthopedic surgeons are inventors, right? Have mm-hmm. IP, and some of them truly do. And there's patents or provisionals and well done, well thought out, very different stuff. And others are, to your point, a little bit rounding off the corners. And whether that's worth something or not, I think having somebody like the gentleman you mentioned in Toledo is it's great to have that at least that first blush and say you're onto something or you're kind of not. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's got to be hard in the sense that if you're a surgeon who likes to tinker and likes to design, you know, you've got your own practice, you've got your own things that don't work well for you, the things that do work well for you. You know, I don't like this implant because the brooch doesn't work really well with it. Or I don't like using this set because the slap hammer is terrible. I try to work slap hammer into every single conversation (laughs) I have with anyone. Perfectly timed. Yep. Thank you. I And Squeeze I feel it. good. I was afraid I wasn't going to get this one. It was kind of touch and go. <laughs> it was like art in motion. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that and the gentleman from Toledo. I'm going to get t-shirts that say both of those things. That's great. But, nice. um, I do think that you have as a surgeon, you have these very personal experiences in your practice. And so sometimes you're solving your problem, which isn't everybody else's problem, but sometimes you're solving a problem. Sometimes you're really Mm -hmm. making, building, designing a better mousetrap. And it's just 
you know, I have a lot of guys and gals who they just tinker all the time, all the mm-hmm. time. They're frustrated engineers. They're great surgeons, but they're like, oh, I, you know, I could have built a nuclear plant. Well, okay, that's great. But right <laughs> now you're replacing knees. So let's just go with that. But yeah. they really come up with these some amazing concepts mm-hmm. that no one else has thought about because they just don't live in the space the same way. And then honestly, I have some folks who come up with stuff that's a little bit different, but nobody bites on it because it's not something that they can manufacture and say, this is so different or this solves Mm. this problem. But you're not going to know until you talk to the people who are out there beyond your scope of just, you know, I'm working in my garage. So one last piece I have, you know, I think some people don't fully understand the value of all the way that these different contracts can be set up. I think most people are just understand the consulting contract or that you know concept is very easy to comprehend. It's straight payment. You get 1099 income normally, pretty straightforward. But there are so many different compensation structures related to consulting, IP, just any creative work related. And they all have different tax, legal, financial planning opportunities that come with them. Can you give me just like high level, you know, in your mind, like when is it right to start asking for like, hey, this is a real thing. Now equity probably should be part of the conversation or is it, you know, I'm going to take that royalty ongoing. Like how do you, I guess, balance some of those things? That's a great question. And that's another one that begs, you know, a million different answers. Of course. Mm -hmm. The way I look at things, there are basically three different kinds of comp. There's that hourly rate. There are royalties and I put license fees in with royalties mm-hmm. and then there's equity. Equity, you got to be careful. It's a mm-hmm. legitimate form of compensation. The government has blessed it, but equity is tough to value, right? If oh, yeah. I if I have a company, I have Teresa Co. I don't know what we make. I'll think about that. T-shirts that say funny things. I don't know. <laughs> Gentleman from Toledo. Gentlemen from Toledo, I am going to call Matt the minute we get off this podcast and be like, dude, you're famous. Do it. So if I have Teresa Co. and Brad, you come in to consult for me and mm-hmm. I want you to do some high level strategic stuff for me. So I say, OK, I'm a C-Corp. I have shares. I'm going to give you 30,000 shares and they're going to vest over three years and you're going to give me all your fabulous ideas and you're going to make me super successful. Sounds good. We get through those three years. Those shares, when they vested, were worth a dollar a piece because nobody knows Teresa Co. No one cares. Already, this story is making me sad. I just want you to know that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, one of your great ideas turns Teresa Co. into a multi-billion dollar corporation. Okay. I'm moving to France at that point, just to circle back <laughs> to a conversation we were having mm-hmm. before we uh, got on air. Now, those 30,000 shares are worth $300 million. Okay. Did you do $300 million worth of work? Because that's what we care about with doctors. Is it the fair market value of what they're doing for you? That's a legal requirement. Mm -hmm. Well, I would argue, yes, it is because your idea created the value. But Mm -hmm. what if your idea didn't create the value? Then do we have a compliance problem? So equity is tough and there are ways to solve that problem. And I'm not going to get in the weeds on it because I'm the only person on this podcast who would be interested in that. And so I'm not (laughs) even going to go there. But it's another piece of the puzzle where it's important to have a healthcare lawyer to kind of craft those compliance safeguards. So there's that. There's equity. Then there is the hourly stuff is easy. 
right? You yeah. want me to come in and look at your instruments and work on them. You want me to evaluate your knee. You want me to sit down with your design team and listen to what they have to say and say, I think you're on the right track, the wrong track. That's all at an hourly rate, which by the way, I want to take 10 seconds and say $500 is no longer the cap. So any small company that tells a surgeon, I can't pay you more than that, the government says so, that is not correct. Now they may have monetary concerns. That's a different issue. The royalty license fee piece is where, you know, Cam, to your point, you really, really need financial assistance. Mm-hmm. Can that royalty be treated as capital gain as opposed to ordinary income? Correct. Maybe, maybe. That is not my wheelhouse. I know the section of the Internal Revenue Code that speaks to it. I have no idea what it means. None. Zero. Duh. So the first thing <laughs> I say when I'm dealing with a royalty agreement is I say, make sure you have an accountant who can look this over once I get it, where once we get it, where you're comfortable. The other thing about royalties is that this is just a real bugaboo of mine. Once the royalty stream starts, make sure there's a provision in that agreement that if you die, your family gets those royalties. You've done your work. You've done your work. And I've literally had companies push back on that. And I'm just like, what? Hmm. The underlying principle with royalties and license fees is that, or the underlying big concern, not principle, but the big concern I have is protecting the life of the royalty stream and protecting the value of the royalty stream. In other words, you know, don't pay me in years 10, 11, and 12 because the implant is dying then, you know, don't pay me in years one, two, and three and make it part of a seven-year royalty because you're in beta phase in one, two, three, no revenue. Right? Absolutely. Right. It's brand new. So you want somebody who can go in and negotiate for you a 10-year term, but royalties don't start until year two, you know, or royalties don't start until you hit a certain threshold. Lots of different legal ways to do it, but Mm -hmm. don't just sign on the dotted line. I, I had a doc come to me and he had signed an agreement years ago that had a royalty term of five years that started upon first commercial sale. Oh, yeah. I think he made like $5. I mean, it was just, it was yeah. tough and there was nothing we could do about it. It's a binding legal document at that point. Right. Yeah. Very true. Well, shameless plug on that and then we'll move on. But I think it's extremely important, obviously, before any of that contract is signed for a CPA, the attorney, the financial planner, they all need to be speaking together and on the same page with this because we've had times where we you know, have clients come in and they say, Hey, great news. We've got this product that finally is through development. We have interest. You know, here's the offer I signed. I want you to take a look at it. And we say, perfect. That is all ordinary income. We have very limited tax planning that we can do with that. There are some, but not a lot. It's just very complex versus if we know going into it, is it capital gains? Is it ordinary income? Here's annual income that we can expect. So we've got some retirement savings you know, plans. We've got some tax deductions we can take, maybe some research credits. There are so many things that go into that consideration that are you know, multifaceted. It's just another reason that you need a team around you and they need to be communicating. So off my yep. soapbox. <laughs> and that's not a shameless plug, man. That's just good information, dude. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the other thing is a lot of docs have their own LLCs or their own PCs set up for mm-hmm. this professional work they do. A lot of times it makes zero sense to run royalties through there. And and they get all excited, bless their hearts, because they're like, I have a company, I have a company, and it's called I'm so smart.com. And it's like, okay, yeah, that is great, but don't run your royalties through there. 
and mm-hmm. that is not a determination for me to make. So let me just say that, you know, that's where you have to go to those professionals. You know, that's where mm-hmm. you have to find Vestia. That's where you have to find the CPA, the whomever, who can say, no, we're not going to do it that way. That's going to come directly to you and we're going to set up a shelter for it and blah, blah, blah. None of which I understand anything about. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Well, I think really good discussion around kind of knowing what you're worth, which is obviously half the battle. The question is, how do we know how to protect that and figure out how much you keep? And so, you know, how does a surgeon get to the bottom of protecting what they're worth, particularly dealing with employers? Yeah, good question. I think, especially with the younger docs, I think you have to, and no one's going to believe that I'm saying this, I think that the surgeons have to have a little more confidence (laughs) I just said that. (laughs) Right. But they do. They have to have a little more confidence in the fact that they can say to an employer, no, you don't get half my royalties. What are you doing? I'm not going to use corporate resources. I'm not going to do this on company time or practice time. You know, this is me. This is mine. I want to have this. You run into that a lot at academic institutions. Right. And I'll tell you, they run the gamut. And obviously, I will name no Mm -hmm. names, but I have some favorites and I have some least favorites. Likewise. Oh, my goodness gracious. And I know in your travels, Brad, you've dealt with that a ton of times. For sure. It always astounds me when an academic institution says, "Okay, sign this document that says you won't use institution resources. You won't do it on institution time. And then they want 70% of your royalty. And I'm like, right. well, what's that for? No answer. Just, I want 70% of your Now, nine times out of 10, you actually can negotiate that. Right. You're not going to negotiate it away, but you can negotiate it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the practice. One of the things that drives me crazy with practice agreements, employment agreements, is if you're going to work with industry, you have to tell us what you're doing. No, I just have to not, you know, in any way negatively impact the goodwill of the practice. I can't use practice resources and I have to show up and see my patients and have my work outside, not impact patient care. That's all I have right. to do. That's it. Those three things. So I think, you know, to know your own worth is to understand exactly what you're being asked to give away. It's also to, as I said before, and I, you know, you could wake me up out of a dead sleep at 3 a.m. This would be the first thing I say, get a non-disclosure agreement <laughs> because right. I have seen so many guys and gals give the farm away. Knowing your own worth means being prospective about your own worth in terms of how you protect it. Mm-hmm. And then I think you can't overstate what it means to have a mentor in this business too. You know, a lot of the young doctors that I work with you know, when they're not sure about what I'm saying or they're not unsure, but they're just like, ah, is that really where I want to go? I'll say, you know what? Go to your fellowship surgeon, right? Go to him or her and ask that question because you shouldn't just trust me because I showed up on your doorstep and said, I'm going to negotiate this for you. Talk to other people in industry. Talk to the folks who came before you. That's true in anything. It's true in the law. It's true in what you guys are doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, talk to someone who's been there. And see if I'm telling you the truth or if I'm a nutbag. You know, it's probably a mix of the two. But, you know, just find out if the advice you're getting squares with what they have seen. And you'll also learn from their mistakes. Because I'll tell you, a lot of my gray-haired guys, and and they're gray-haired guys, I got to tell you, I'm waiting for my gray-haired gal. They're out there and we're doing it. We're doing it. Women in orthopedics is real. Getting better. But they're all young and vivacious and vibrant and brilliant But my gray-haired guys have a lot of war stories to tell, and they're very valuable. They're very valuable to the younger doc. 
For sure. I love that. The getting a mentor, I think, to your point, is a fantastic way. And I've seen that work where some of the folks who wind up in the hip society, knee society, we have a future podcast guest going to talk a little bit about that, but having that mentor so important in a lot of these areas. It really is. It really is. And this industry is just, it changes constantly. I think it does. I think one of the biggest things right now in terms of just change, the next big thing is not going to be metal or plastic. It's going to be navigation. It's going to be robotics. It's going to be pre, peri, post-operative planning. You know, these are all uncharted waters for all of us, you know? And, you know, the big thing with all of that is the IP piece of it. What am I protecting? How do I protect it? How far do I go out in terms of your concepts to protect it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's an ever-changing industry. And I think anytime you can talk to someone historically, you know, about what came before, patterns repeat. And so it's just really important that knowledge base is out there. Use it. Absolutely. Yep. All great insights. Well, this has been extremely enlightening. Uh, time flies when we're talking IP, but uh, <laughs> I want to kind of wrap up. Honestly, I mean, the moral of the story that I see just like in financial lives, but this is a very complex situation. There are very many variables. They all do play a part. There should be no cookie cutter approach when it comes to IP. Never, ever should there ever be that. And that's why you do need specialization. So a couple of actionable items that I picked up, you know, work with someone who understands orthopedics, understanding your specific industry, and then even down to your subspecialty level, especially when it comes to the IP rights and the legal side is going to be critical. So working with, again, just like they would sell themselves as a specialist in their field, as opposed to a general orthopedic physician, that's the value that you bring as an attorney. And then as a whole team of professionals, knowing orthopedics is huge. Great, great value. Education is key. You're very much like us in that we know our clients are very, very smart people, but we also know that they're very, very busy. And although they want to make the ultimate decision, it's our job to help them identify opportunities and avoid obstacles and steer them. But they get to ultimately make that decision, but they're at least educated on what they're giving up, which is what you talked about multiple times. I mean, what am I giving up? Understanding the worth. I mean, there's always a trade-off. So as long as you understand what the trade-off is in your legal contract, your employment agreement, the royalty structure... For us, it's, do you want to work longer? Do you want to save more? I mean, if you want to, you can't have the lavish lifestyle and work until you're 50 if, you know, you don't put away enough money every month. Like one of those variables have to change. So, and the last thing that I loved is I I wrote down CYA with an NDA. Like, <laughs> That's another oh, yeah. t-shirt, Cam. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's our third t-shirt. Yeah, we talk about it all the time, but I I do think that's a a fantastic takeaway. Honestly, even if you just think it's a casual grabbing drinks with your supplier or your rep and you're just talking through an idea, that rep might very well understand that that's a multi-billion dollar idea that you just spewed out Mm -hmm. over two glasses of bourbon. And if you don't have that going into it, they get that on paper before you do. What's to say that that's theirs versus yours? So, the NDA is an extremely easy way. And then to your point, get your thoughts on paper. I mean, at least get something down, dated, you know, just document what you can and get that NDA in place. And that's, you know, some of the best CYA you can have at the very onset. So that was super high level, but did I miss anything like huge from what we talked about? 
I don't think so. And we have three T-shirts. I mean, I don't know what else we could ask for as a result of this podcast. I mean, it's a slam dunk for Teresa Co., by the way, which, by the way, you hired me already. We have it here on the podcast. <laughs> I know. So. You've got so many shares of this company that doesn't yet exist. It's frightening. <laughs> yeah. My biggest hope, my biggest what I'm putting out into the universe is that especially the younger doctors, but all doctors who are working with industry, working with practices, being employed by hospitals, we're seeing a big shift again. And I've been in this business long enough. It goes back and forth. A lot of docs going back to hospital employment. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing is, you know, again, it's cheaper up front if you pay a good healthcare lawyer a few hundred dollars, maybe $1,500, and you end up saving millions or hundreds of thousands. Yeah. It's just really important to A, not be afraid of that concept and B, to not think you don't need it because we all need, you know, I'm not going to fix my own knee. I'm going to yep. go to somebody to do that. And so it's right. just kind of that in reverse. So that too is an important takeaway. Get some Great help point. from the legal side and the financial side. It's huge. It's just huge. Right on. Let's each stick to what we're good at and uh, we'll all be successful in the end. So really appreciate your time, Teresa. We're going to put all your contact information in the episode description so people can get a hold of you. Although you work with 420 orthopedic surgeons already, I know you want to work with more. I do. And I do. <laughs> you genuinely have people's interest with the gentleman in Toledo. So they need to know who that person is as well. Teresa is that person, a trusted resource here at Vestia. So again, thank you for taking the time to listen to us. Hopefully you took some actionable insights away and uh, hope to see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Doctor's Eyes Only podcast. We hope today's conversation advanced your journey to wealth that matters. Click the subscribe button below so you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vestia Advisors, LLC. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney or tax advisor. This information is not an offer or a solicitation to buy securities. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Before investing, you should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses associated with investment products. Investment decisions should be based on an individual's own goals, time horizon, and tolerance for risk. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. Consult with your financial professional before making any investments. Investment advisory services offered through Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors, Vestia Retirement Plan Consultants, and Vestia Advisors, LLC. Securities offered through Osdale Financial Partners, Inc., 5187 Utica Ridge Drive, Davenport, Indiana, 52807-563-326-2064. Member FINRA, SIPC, Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors, Vestia Retirement Plan Consultants, Vestia Advisors, LLC, and Osdale Financial Partners, Inc. are independently owned and operated.